You are listening to the Purpose Church High School Ministry Podcast. Whether this is your first episode or you've heard them all, God has something to say to you. Our vision is to see every student everywhere following Jesus, and we hope this message helps you take your next step in your faith. To learn more about our high school ministry, visit our website, purposechurch.com HSM, and check us out on Instagram at purposehsm. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We are in week five of our More Than Sex series. I want you guys to go ahead and grab the pens that are underneath your chairs. If you're in the aisles here, go ahead and grab the pens and go ahead and pass them down. Because I'm going to fly through a lot of content tonight, I wanted to make sure that you caught everything that I wanted to make sure you walked away with. So you guys have uh, sermon notes with you. You got some slide outlines. I want to encourage you to take notes because I I want you to know at the end of the day, here's my goal. Here's my goal is that you have a little bit more to think about when it comes to what does the Bible say about marriage and sex, and then you discuss it in your life groups. And so I want to encourage you to be ready to ask lots of questions in your life group to really make sure you dive in. By the way, you guys, I've got some special people here. I've got my wife back there. My wife Sarah's back there. If everyone wants to say, hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. And then you guys, to the left of Sarah, look back. That's my mom. Can everyone say, hi, mom? Which it's every person's dream to talk about sex in front of your mom, right? Like that's really, really cool. So here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to pray and then we're going to jump in. So can everyone, can everyone focus up here real quick? And here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask that you take your AirPods out. I'm going to ask that you put your phone away. I'm going to ask that you try to, try to eliminate any other distractions and really zero in. Because God has a lot to say about our topic tonight. And I think if you and I walk away with some deeper biblical truths and choose to apply what his word says, we'll be better off because of it and we'll be closer to him because of it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for every single student here. God, thank you that you know them so well. You know their hearts, their stories, their lives, their struggles. And God, I pray that you would use tonight to speak to them and to remind them that in every area of their lives, you have something to say because you love them that much. Because you don't want them to just go wandering about life, doing their own thing, but you created them to live a certain way because that way, your way, will bring about the most joy in our lives, the most peace in our lives, and we will flourish when we follow you. And so, Jesus, we trust you. In your name we pray, amen, amen. So tonight we are talking about the truth about marriage and sex, and our subtitle for tonight is this, God's brilliant and sometimes frustrating design for marriage and sex. Make no mistake about it, every one of you is gonna leave this room and there's gonna be something that I say that's going to frustrate you. There's going to be something that I talk about that you're going to go, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't like that. But I put in there very intentionally that God's design for marriage and sex, though there might be aspects of it that are frustrating for us right now, it's actually brilliant in the long run. You see, I'm, I'm starting from the operating place that, that God created every single one of us that he knows the best way to live our lives. And, and, and God can see the whole picture, whereas you and I can usually only see part of the picture. 
And so in this entire series, what we're trying to develop within each one of us is a spiritual maturity to trust God even when there's parts of his word that don't make sense. Tonight, tonight we're, we're learning how to trust God even when it may go against some of our feelings and our desires. I showed you this picture before, but I'm gonna show it again. This was 12 and a half years ago on Sarah and I's wedding day. So Sarah and I have been married over 12 and a half years, and I've said this before, but those of you that haven't heard it, I know all of you are wondering, oh, Caitlin hasn't seen this photo before. Maybe Caitlin is thinking the same thing. Most of y'all are thinking, was he 12 when they got married, right? And we weren't 12, we were 14, and we got happily married, and we're really, really that's why I'm 21 right now. So we've been married since, since then. But what I want to teach, what I want to share with you is a little bit of what I've learned over the last 12 years, but mostly what I want to share with you is what does God's word say? Now, before we go any farther, before we go any farther, especially at this point in the series, and especially leading up to what we're going to talk about the next two weeks, I, I want to say this. There may be some of you in this room who, when, when we are, have been in this relationship series, there's kind of a, a deeper nagging question. The question you've been asking is, well, Eric, I'm actually attracted to the same sex. And I'm not sure exactly what to do with that. And so as we're talking about relationships and we're talking about marriage, there's this, there's this question underneath the surface. And I need to say something to you. I think the church has done a horrible job for the most part when it comes to this question. In fact, I think a lot of pain and a lot of damage has been done because Christians, pastors like myself, have done a lot of talking and very little listening. And so tonight I just want to say, and I'm going to say this especially next week, if you're experiencing same-sex attraction... I would love to invite you, if you would be so brave and courageous and willing, I would love to invite you to text me. I, I would love the opportunity to sit down with you in confidentiality to just listen to your story. All I want to do is listen. I want to get to know your story. I want to understand you and where you're coming from a little bit better. And I want to offer support. Because unfortunately in church environments like this, People who have experienced same-sex attraction oftentimes feel like they can't open up and share. They can't talk about it. And I want to break that stigma. And so I want to encourage you, that if, if that's you, if that's something you've experienced, that I would love nothing more than to listen to your story, to be just one person that you could share with and that could walk alongside you in that process. Let me first start out by telling you the lie. This is the lie of our culture. The lie is this. There is one soulmate, a perfect match out there for you, and your life will be complete and fulfilled if you find and marry them. That we live in a culture that has so overhyped, has so over-sexualized, has so over-idolized, to use a Bible word, they've made an idol out of marriage and sex that we, not just, not just out in the secular world, but even in the church, we've begun to think, my sole purpose is to find, some, to find my soulmate, to find the perfect person, and once I marry them, then my life is going to be complete. All my problems are going to go away. And I remember when, where's Christina Dway? Is Christina Dway here? Where is she? Where is she? Where's Christina Dway? 
There she is. I remember I gave a similar message when Jay was in high school, and I shared with her, there is no soulmate out there for you. I know. Like, it's really mean. I know. It's not like the young adult novels talk about, right? Like, it's just not. There's no soulmate out there for you. Here's why. Here's why I believe that. Because if there was a soulmate out there for you, Number one, how in the world would you make sure you found them among the eight billion people? And number two, once you finally found that soulmate, there wouldn't be any problems. You'd be soulmates with each other. You'd be the perfect match. But the Bible has so much to say about how to stay married, about how to love each other, about how to serve each other. You see, marriage is really two broken people not completing each other. It's two broken people coming together and saying, we love Jesus, we wanna love each other, and for the rest of our lives, we're gonna get better and better at loving Jesus and loving each other. But here's the truth. The best love story is when one man and one woman, out of a deep love for Jesus, choose to marry one another for the purpose of daily laying down their lives for each other and for the gospel. That's sexy, all right? That's cool. That is where it's at. And I know, I know, I know when you watch The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, which I don't hate, I watch those shows, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, Sarah tells me when I can watch, but I watch those shows. I get it. But the most... The most romantic, amazing love story is two people who love Jesus, a husband and a wife, and say, you know what? We want to lay down our lives for each other and for the gospel. This means it's not feeling-based. I remember when Sarah and I were just dating. We were, we were in uh, separate cities. I lived in San Diego. She lived in Los Angeles. And we would meet each other like once every two weeks or three weeks and we were always so excited to see each other. And, and on this one date, we met in, uh, in, in Newport area. And we went and saw this movie, and it had been like two or three weeks since we saw each other. We went and saw this movie, and it was towards the end of the night when we were uh, you know, going to go back to our respective cities. And, and, and Sarah asked me a question. She said, she said, Eric, do you still have butterflies in your stomach for me? Like, do you still have butterflies? And you guys, I've never been good in those situations. And I just said, no. Like, that's what I said. I know, I know. It's the worst thing you could say. I know, I know, I know. I know, don't take, don't take dating advice from me, okay? I just said no. But then, but then, and then, and then she was like, what? And I was like, no, no, let me explain, let me explain. I was like, a lot of times, yes. Like a lot of times I do have feelings for you. But there are times when I don't have butterflies for you and I'm still choosing to love you. Because I said when we love each other, when we choose to love each other, it's bigger than feelings. And if you rely on the false belief that there's a soulmate, there's a perfect match out there for you. Inevitably, in marriage, you're going to get to a point where you're tired of that person, where you don't have those butterflies anymore. And you know what you're going to think? You're going to think, I married the wrong person. You hear the phrase, you hear the saying, um, the grass is greener on the other side? Catch this, y'all. Tweet this later, okay? The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greenest where you water. The grass is greenest where you choose to water and invest your time and your energy. And that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, I want to look at four biblical, frustrating, and brilliant truths about marriage and sex. First thing we're going to talk about this. Marriage, number one, truth number one is this. Marriage and sex were God's idea first. This is a powerful, important place to start the conversation. 
Number two, joy comes when you die to yourself. Number three, sex is not gross or God. Sex is a gift. And number four, marriage isn't for eternity, but its wins will be. Let's, talk, let's dive into truth number one. Truth number one is this. Marriage and sex were God's idea first. Marriage and sex were God's idea first. In a marriage between a man and a woman, two equals become united as one. Two equals become united as one. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, it says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God, in the middle of him creating, God has a brilliant idea to create humans. God thinks this idea before it happens, and then, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. This is critical. This is huge. It doesn't say that God only created men. It says he created them, male and female, he created them. So God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Literally, the very first command that God gives to a husband and wife is have sex. Y'all thought God was boring. Y'all thought God was lame. The first command God gives to a husband and wife is to have sex. This is so foundational. This means sex was God's idea. People didn't just start having sex and God was like, oh, that's weird. Like, what happened? That's weird. I, I gotta fix that. No, it was God's idea from the beginning. The story then in Genesis chapter two sort of, sort of zooms in. That's the overarching. So God creates men and women, but then, then we get a little bit more details in Genesis chapter two. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. So God created Adam first. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, all the ladies in the room should be like, helper what? Like God says, I'm a helper? I'm a helper? That's what I get called? I'm a helper? We're going to dive into that in a second. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Let's look at these two words. The word helper in the original language, which was Hebrew, that's what Genesis was written in. The word helper in Hebrew is azer. Everyone say azer on the count of three. One, two, three. Azer is usually used in terms of divine assistance or military aid. In fact, in multiple places in the Old Testament, God himself is described as an azer. God is described as a helper. So, so when the scripture says that no suitable helper was there for Adam, it is not in any way demeaning who a woman is. Because from the very beginning, God created men and women equally. Now, this is insane because in the context that this story was written in, which is over 3,400 years ago, women at best were considered property. Women at best were considered objects to be used. But it's into this culture that does not view women highly or favorably or with any sort of intelligence that God speaks his brilliant truth 
and says, no, women are actually equal with men. The word neged, everyone say neged on three, one, two, three. The word suitable, it literally means like opposite him or matching him. This is really important as we'll dive in next week. That when God designed a match for Adam, it was somebody opposite of him. It was important that there were distinct differences, that man and woman were brought together. You see, sex was designed to be experienced and fully enjoyed within the safety of a lifetime commitment between a husband and a wife. The story continues. So the Lord God caused a man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, imagine this. I mean, Adam has only been looking at porcupines and like lizards and like all kinds of animals. And then all of a sudden, Adam sees a woman. Look at what happens. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman for she was taken out of a man. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no Shame. I love what Matthew Henry, the 18th century theologian, he, he, he made a, a, a kind of, a, kind of a, a commentary on this passage and he said this, the woman was not made out of the man's head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Now remember when it said that they became one flesh? It's not just talking about how once they were married, they had sex. It's talking about something much deeper. The word for, the word for one in Hebrew is akkad. I want all of you to say akkad with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Akkad. The word akkad means permanence and passion. Literally in these first few pages of the story of God, he says, I've designed marriage and sex and it's to be experience between a husband and a wife and in that union they become one and what I mean by oneness is permanence meaning it lasts a lifetime and it always has passion maybe there's some of you you know marriages around you where they're they've lost passion maybe, maybe they're they're kind of more like roommates that is not God's desire God's desire is that you would continue to have a passionate relationship, but not with different men or different women, but that you would commit in the context of marriage, and that through that life-giving relationship that there would be permanence, there would be safety within that relationship, and there would be passion. Students, God created marriage to be experienced between a Christian woman and a Christian man. This is so important. Marriage is not a state of California thing. In fact, whenever I do weddings, I love doing weddings. I just got back. I was in Mexico officiating a wedding. I love doing weddings. But it is not about that legal paper that you sign. It is about going before God and saying, we need your help and we need all the people that are gathered here to help us. It's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 39 says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. 
Notice Paul didn't say, now I want you to begin this long journey of finding your soulmate, sign up for The Bachelor, and then join that, and then you're going to log on to Tinder, and you're going to find the person. Like, he didn't say that. He said, if you want to get married, go ahead and get married. But make sure that this person belongs to the Lord. Truth number two. Truth number two is this. Joy comes when you die to yourself. Joy comes when you die to yourself. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is so important, especially for those of you that are just checking Christianity out. You're here, you're not sure if you're a follower of Jesus, you're trying to figure out what it's about. This is important for you to know about part of what we think as Christians. We believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, that we were like slaves to sin, that, that we were, we were kind of just self-absorbed, and that Christ freed us, that he literally paid the price so that you and I could be free. And now we belong to God's family. We belong to Jesus. And I've told you guys this before, Christianity does not have to be complicated. Christianity is very simple. Find out what pleases the Lord and do it. That's what it's all about, finding out what pleases the Lord. And why do we want to please the Lord? Because he gave up everything for us. Because he loves you so much that he gave up his life because he wants you to be close with him. Because he did everything necessary so that nothing would get in the way of you being in a love relationship with him. And so, of course, we want to trust him. Of course, we want to follow him. Of course, we want to please him. Because he showed us love. Because he did for us what no boyfriend or anyone else could ever do. Therefore, we honor God with our bodies. Therefore, we think about marriage differently. Marriage is an opportunity to mutually serve and value each other and honor God. This is what's so beautiful about Christian marriage. Is it's an opportunity to serve and value each other and honor God in the process. Now look at this. This is like, this is a crazy passage. This is insane for the time that it was written. This, this passage we're about to read was written in the first century. Again, when women were treated as property. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it, chooses to yield it to her husband. So when, when Paul's talking about Christian marriage, he, he's not saying that, that, that we should be selfish, but that we should give ourselves to each other, that we should serve each other. Now, everyone reading this would have said, yeah, duh, like that, that, that's exactly what women should do. That was the context that this was written in. But then Paul says something unbelievable. He says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. To which every man listening to this for the very first time would say, oh, say what? <laughs> Wait, but that's not what everybody else does. No, 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 I can, I, 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 I can marry whoever I want. I can sleep with whoever I want. In fact, in this day and age, in this culture that this was written in, men could leave their wives for any reason they wanted to. And here Paul says, this is where Christian marriage is different. That yes, God, God is calling wives to, to, to trust their husbands, to serve, but he's also calling men to do that for each other. 
The best days in Sarah and I's marriage have been the days when she is choosing to yield herself, when she's choosing to serve me, when she's choosing to put me first, and at the same time, I'm doing the same for her. The moments that we have been at our worst in our marriage have always been when, when both of us are being selfish, when both of us are more interested in having our needs met rather than serving and caring for the other. You see, this is the radical nature of biblical marriage. I heard an author say once that marriage is a submission competition. It's not a competition to have your needs met. It's not a competition to prove that you're better than them. It's a competition to out-submit and serve each other. Now, I want to show you a, a fairly controversial text. This is a passage in the Bible that gets a lot of airtime. And honestly, I think it gets misinterpreted a lot. Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, many of you have probably heard verse 22. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. Here's what's interesting, though. In the original language that this was written in, verse 22 does not have the word submit in it. Verse 22 does not have the word submit in it. In fact, it just says this, wives also to your own husbands. In other words, for Paul to make his point in verse 22, he borrows the verb from, from 21. A lot of people like to separate these verses. And they focus on wives. It is your job to submit to your husbands. But it, according to the scriptures, you can't talk about wives submitting to your husbands without first talking about how we are all called to submit to one another. And so what the scriptures teach is that we're, as Christians, supposed to submit to each other. Now, it wouldn't make any sense that me as a husband was called to submit to every other Christian, but for some reason, because Sarah's my wife, I'm not called to submit to her. So God's idea is that we would all be, especially in marriage, that we would be submitting to each other. That we'd be looking for opportunities to, to lay down our pride, to lay down our desires, to lay down our self-centered thinking, and to take on the perspective of the other and what is it that they need. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. What does it mean for a man to be, for a husband to be the head of his wife? Does that mean that husbands get to make all the decisions? Does that mean that when it's either the Super Bowl or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Love is Blind is on and husband's like, sorry, I'm the husband, we're choosing Super Bowl. Is that what it means? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. Men, what does it mean that in a marriage you are the head of your wife? What it means is that God calls husbands to be the first to lay down their will and the first to sacrifice. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus did. So husbands, what does it mean to be the head of your wife? It means you are the first to lay down your will and your desire. It means you are the first. If there is a, a decision to be made, you're the first to say, not what I will, but what you will. Not what my needs are, but your needs. 
Likewise, God calls wives to willingly lay down their power, to willingly lay down their control, and to choose to trust. Do you see how when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, husbands, lay down your lives for your wives, if they're both doing that, it's a picture of Jesus. This is what marriage is all about. It's a picture It's a picture of the kingdom of God. It's a picture of what Jesus has done with and for us. Truth number three, truth number three. Sex is not gross or God, sex is a gift. Maybe you've grown up in a home, maybe you've grown up in a culture that has told you sex is gross. You don't ever talk about it. You should never talk about it. I've told you guys this story before, but uh, when Charlie was, when Charlie was, uh, gosh, I guess he would have been like three or so before Lila was born. Sarah, you can correct me on the math, but Charlie was maybe three or four before Lila was born. And Sarah was pregnant with Lila and, and ready to deliver like any moment. And I remember Charlie was in bed with us cuddling and, and I looked over at Charlie and I said, Charlie, do you have any questions about your new baby sister? Anything that you want to talk about? And Charlie said this, he said, yeah, I have a question, dad. How's baby Lila going to get out? I was like, not ready for this. So Sarah and I sat there and we kind of tried to like answer the best that we could. And I remember Sarah and I were like holding our hands tight. We're like, our hands are sweating. We're like, I don't know how we're going to do this. So we tried to kind of explain it to him. And then, and then he got real quiet again. And then he said, dad, I have one more question. How did baby Lila get in there? I was like, no, like I can't do this. But we started to have this conversation because we want to create a culture in our house where we can talk about sex, where kids can ask these kinds of questions. We don't want them to grow up thinking that sex is gross, like you should never talk about it. But we also don't want them to believe the cultural lie right now that sex is God, that sex is everything. And you guys need to be aware it's so important that as you guys are becoming adults that you are analyzing the culture that you find yourself in. You are growing up in a culture that is telling you who you are having sex with, how many people you're having sex with, and who you will have sex with in the future is the most important thing. And the problem is that is a lie from the pit of hell. And if you follow that way of living, it will only lead towards destruction. When in fact, God's design was that we would see sex as a gift. In Song of Songs, there's this whole book written about this, this, this couple who's falling in love and gets married. And in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Oh, let me warn you, sisters in Jerusalem, by the gazelles, yes, by all the wild deer. It's very poetic. Don't excite love. Don't stir it up until the time is ripe and you're ready. There's these warnings throughout this book that love and sex are reserved for marriage. I love what Erwin McManus, the pastor, he says, you can, you can have sex without giving love, but you can't have sex without giving a part of yourself. And there's some of you in this room who, you've already had sex, and you've experienced that. Maybe that relationship has gone bad, they promised they'd be with you forever, but then they started to tell other people about what you were doing, and they've broken up, and they're no longer a part of your lives. And you know, man, there's a, there's a part of you still with them, that you gave up a part of yourself. Sex should be intimate and it should be personal. 
Song of Songs 2.16 says, my lover is mine and I am his. And lastly, sex is exclusive within marriage. You are my private garden, it says, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. If sex was just something physical, if it was just no big deal, if it was just about experiencing pleasure in a moment, why, when those relationships break up, is there so much pain and trauma and hurt? You know, there was a... uh, there was a, a young woman who was in a ministry that my wife Sarah and I were leading for a while. And, and when she graduated high school and went to college, we were so nervous because she just kind of went off the deep end. And when she went off the deep end, she just started partying. She started drinking. She started smoking. She started sleeping around. And I'll never forget one night, Sarah and I were about to go to bed. It was like 11 o'clock and we got a phone call from her. We hadn't heard from her in a long time. And what we answered, what we heard on the other end of the phone was this this poor girl just weeping, just crying and weeping. And I remember she said, I'm high on something, I don't know what. I just slept with somebody I don't even know. And I feel empty. She said, I just feel empty. And I thought about what she thought sex and partying was going to give her and instead what it did deliver was emptiness see students sex within a marriage is powerful enough to unite a husband and wife and sex within marriage glorifies god it's what he designed marriages for but here's the crazy thing about sex sex outside of marriage is dangerous enough to damage a person's life. That sex is that powerful. It's not something to mess around with. It's not something to take lighthearted. Rebecca McLaughlin, she wrote a book that our student leaders are reading, and in it she said these words, sex can bring joy and create life, but like a campfire in the living room, sex can also bring terrible hurt and heartbreak. Having sex before marriage can be destructive and having sexual relationships with a lot of people tends to make us less happy. Like eating too much candy, it might feel good in the moment, but the after effects can be miserable. God created sex to go with deep, lifelong commitment and researchers have found that having sex with just one person consistently does correlate with happiness. But when we pull sex and commitment apart, it hurts. Now, again, like I said, I'm talking to two audiences tonight. There's some of you who you've never had sex before, and you're trying to decide, is that something that you are going to value, that you're going to see the way God sees it? And I could only beg you, I could only ask you to, to, to be thoughtful and wise and to choose to trust God who created marriage, who created sex, and who created you, and who died and rose for you. This means you can trust him. And so this frustrating thing that you may go, man, I want to have sex with somebody right now. Welcome to teenage years. Welcome to adolescence. Every one of you are feeling that. It's totally normal. But God designed it to be experienced within marriage, within the safety net of marriage. And so I beg you to consider choosing to trust Jesus. But there's some of you in this room who you've already had sex. 
maybe with one person, maybe with multiple people. And I want to remind you of the grace of God, that he knows that about your story, and you don't have to hide that from him anymore. You don't have to think, oh, he could never love me because I slept with somebody. No, God can forgive everything. He does forgive everything. Don't miss this, especially if you're a Christian. Maybe you've never even told anybody that you've had sex before. You need to know God can forgive you and wants to because he loves you. But I believe he also wants you to make a decision tonight that you're gonna say, you know what? I'm gonna trust, even though it's frustrating, I'm gonna trust God and I'm gonna stop listening to the advice of my culture and maybe some of my bad influences and I'm gonna trust God. And you can make a decision right now to say, you know what, from this point on, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to wait to have sex if I get married. That is an incredibly God-honoring decision. As the creator of marriage and sex, God gives us boundaries to protect and bless us, not to withhold something from us. Truth number four, then we're going to get into life groups. Marriage isn't for eternity, but its wins will be. Remember, Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say, therefore, go and get married and live in a nice house with a white picket fence and have two kids with perfectly parted hair. No, he didn't say any of that. He says, your purpose is to go and make disciples. This is important, whether you're single, dating, engaged, married, wherever, your job, your goal, God's goal for you is that you would go and make disciples. See, marriage has an expiration date, but eternity with Jesus does not. Jesus said these words, at the resurrection, people with, will neither marry nor be given in marriage. This means when, 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 Sarah, when Sarah and I die and we enter into eternity, we won't be married anymore. And I know like Mormon theology says, you're going to be married forever. It's just not in the Bible. It's because marriage points to something even larger than itself. In the Bible, marriage is not the end goal. The end goal is faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. Marriage is a picture. It's, it's, a, it's a place of preparation for eternity with God. Sarah loves when I tell her this. I always tell her, babe, there's an expiration date on our marriage. I don't do that very often. I don't do that very often. I'm, I, I promise you I'm a little bit of a nicer husband than that. Here's what's so cool. A marriage that is all about Jesus is a marriage whose fruit will echo into eternity. Let this one verse be a picture and an example of what marriage could be. In Acts 18, 26, it says this. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife, heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. This is a beautiful marriage. This is a husband and wife who love each other, who have chosen to serve with each other, who have chosen to share the gospel with others. Over the last 12 years that Sarah and I have been married, some of our favorite moments in marriage have been doing ministry with each other, have been telling our kids about Jesus, have been telling you about Jesus, have been the opportunity to be encouraging people. That is what Christian marriage is about. So students, those are the four truths about marriage and 
sex. You have some life group questions at the end. I'm going to pray for you, and then I want you to head out into your life groups. If you're brand new tonight and, and your first time here and you don't know where to go, we have a life group for you where you're going to get to discuss some of this content we just talked about. Come up to the front, and we will get you in one of those life groups. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for every one of these students. I pray that as they head into their life groups, God, that they would have some rich discussions about how you view marriage and sex. And God, would each one of us commit to trusting you enough to obey you and to follow you, even when it's frustrating, even when we don't fully understand it, because we know that you love us, you created us, and you died and rose again. In Jesus' name we pray.